Welcome to Criminal Perspective. I'm Chris. I'm Andrew. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Chander Mata, who murdered three sex workers in the in the Virginia, Washington, D.C. area over Memorial Day weekend in 1990. All three of these women were murdered in a period of 26 hours. Andrew, what do you know about Chander Mata? Chander Mata robbed and murdered Sherry Larman, Jody Phillips, and Sandra Johnson, ages 26, 16, and 20. His account of the story varied with um, police and different officers. He was he was pretty he was pretty clear with us about how he killed them, though. Right, right. But I know it says here that his story has changed over time, and I'm sure that has to do with defense or appeals or whatever it may be. You think it's it's just legal maneuvering? I think so. Yeah, the victims the victims were all bound. Were there plastic bags over all of their heads or only some of them? The reports say that they were all suffocated with the bag over their head. Chander, you'll hear in the interview, Chander tells us that he suffocated him. Basically, if you ever watch MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or anything, a rear naked choke, that type of choke, he choked them unconscious after beating them. One he mentions was beaten more severely than the others, and they were all bound, hands bound, and it, at least one I know of had a like a trash bag put over their head, possibly all three of them. And like we said, this took place over 26 hours. The very few things you find in the media about him will identify him as a spree killer, but I'm going to challenge that after the interview. So let's just jump to the interview. We'll talk to Chandra Mata, and then we'll talk about him afterwards. Uh, Chandra, let's start off with your, what was your childhood like? What were, what were things like for you growing up? Um, you know, I, when I came here when I was young, my parents were immigrants. My family tried to give us as much as possible, you know, but... We grew up, I think, in a way, like, my parents were in America, but were still in India. I was growing up here, in a way, you know, more American. You know, they provided for us. It was loving. It was more, it was very structured. You know, you look, you're talking about in the 70s, old traditional family style. And I think in some ways it was difficult for my parents over here to see and adapt into this American culture, you know, you're talking about early immigrants, first wave of immigrants, where where they are holding on to their ways, but also not comfortable adapting American ways, but their children are growing up in American culture. So that was kind of difficult for them, as well as with me, the adjustments. Um, you know, we were, you know, our parents provided so much for us and gave so much. You know, not a lot of, a lot of kids get a car on the day they turn 16 and they get the driver's license. My dad, day I turned 16, I passed my driver's license, um, test. He just, here you go, car keys and went and got himself a new car. And the car that I was given was only like a year and a half old, you know. So we were average middle-class family. Um, both parents worked, but you know, it was, it was tough growing up for them. It was tough for them, 
And in a lot of ways, I think I was bitter because I wasn't allowed to do or live like the American life I wanted or what I was. There was a school and outside life and there was a home life. It was kind of different. So that was, that was probably, now I look back, something I was not used to, but they were not also used to it. Yeah, would you say that you had your personality outside of the the family dynamic and then at home you had your own personality? Sure, because, um, you know, it's different now because with my niece and nephew, they pretty much all, everybody speaks English. And it's difficult for my mother now to, like, communicate sometimes with her grandchildren because of the language thing. She did not speak English very well. And they speak some, they are majority 100% English, you know, maybe 70, 60%, you know, Hindi. And you throw a little bit of Spanish in there that she is also learning in school. So it's difficult for them now in ways to deal with their grandchildren, you know, but just communication-wise, it's kind of hard sometimes. So yeah. there, there was a different, you know, set because English was at, you know, outside, but at home it was this. And, I, and then in a way, I think I remember my dad changing that. And the reason he changed it because I was doing, I wasn't doing well in language and English classes. And that was one of the teachers said might be a factor that, don't speak enough English at home. So my dad decided, you know, we're going to adopt more English at home. And that helped a lot. Um, was there was there anything um, abusive or traumatic that you recall? Anything traumatic that, that you think may have changed something in your life significantly? Or was there any abuse, anything like that growing up? Not that I, you know, recall. I mean, you know, it was, you were disciplined different in those days, especially with traditional families than here, you know, today, today's time. But was I, you know, physically abused or, or no, sexually? No. Um, You're punished when you did wrong. You knew what you did wrong. You know, you, as a kid, you were still mad about it, but. It was just part of, you know, life, I guess, but it wasn't, it wasn't like you, we were abused or anything. Yeah. So, Chander, you're, you were 21 around the time you committed the crimes you're currently in prison for. Yeah. Um, can you give us an idea of what things were like for you around that time leading up to the murders and, and the confluence of events and how your life was going at that time? I had a lot of issues of blacking, blacking out, not knowing, you know, time lapses. I think some things started more in college when I went off to military school. One, because I went so far away and it was difficult to come back home for the distance, like to Thanksgiving and stuff like that. And family, family really meant something, you know, so... I had to go to an aunt's house who I hardly knew in Canada. You know, this was a, someone that was a close friend to the family. I was in school in Vermont. And that's where I went and spent 
and Billy didn't come home until Christmas. This was early September to Christmas. And this is probably the longest period. I would, this was the longest period I've ever been away from home. There were issues and things that happened down there at school with hazing that I chose not to want to return to the school the following year. So you, in, in terms of, of, of you being hazed? Yeah. Well, the, the university denied any of this happened. It was a military school. Um, the university denied that anything happened during the trial, but there was two, three people that spoke on some things that did occur, but not what I, there was something I was in a journal that I wrote, or not a journal, it, it was a notebook. And, you know, when my attorneys used it, they said I was writing a novel, and that none of this was true. And some people that testified for me said, you know, he was going through something, but these certain type of events did happen. And later on, the university wound up settling for a lot of money with several other cases afterward of hazing incidences. And if you look at, you know, other schools, universities, uh, uh, you know, the academies, they've had incidences that have come out. Now, in recent times of situations and things that happened at that time also. Can but you give us an example of the type of hazing that, that you went through? One of the things that happened, my roommate at that time, he was in the infirmary, so I was in the room. You know, I had no roommate at that time. He was in the infirmary. So somewhere in the middle of the night, uh, some upperclassmen entered into my room and held me down and uh, just, you know, whispered that we know you're screwing up, da-da-da, this, that, and everything. We're watching you all the time, you know, that sort of things. And don't you, don't move or none of this and that. And they just had me pinned down. It was like, I don't know, maybe three, four people. I don't know. Um, I can't remember even how many hands were holding my feet and, and, and neck down. And who was whispering? I couldn't see in there because the room was dark. But when they left, I just laid there, you know, for a while until I got up. And it was, that was probably the first incident. And then there was incidences that I felt I couldn't trust people. Uh, my, my squad leader, he actually testified during my trial that, you know, he thought we were getting along fine and everything. And then one day when we were playing intramural sports, we had a situation between me and him and I kind of got aggressive, overly aggressive with him in a flag football game and he couldn't understand it. So he was just like, you know, get off the field and this and that. And then later on called me in and he's like, what the hell is wrong with you? This and that. And he testified in the trial that I spoke to him about that particular incident and he looked into it. But he said he knew what happened and everything. And I had told him I felt like he was one of the ones that might have been doing that. And he felt really bad about it. Why I didn't come to him sooner, you know, why I kept it. And I, I told him I was, you know, afraid. And 
he went into it and he knew who it was that he said, he said, he said, listen, they've been taken care of. They're not going to this and that. And he was really pissed, pissed about it. But he said, just, you know, you're doing fine. And that was kind of it. And I really didn't talk to him much after that incident like before. You're saying during the hazing, you were psychologically damaged by them sneaking in and holding you down and threatening you in the, in the middle of the night and things like that? I don't know if I was psychologically damaged or just really traumatized. Um, I know that, and I don't remember a couple of incidences that my ex-girlfriend, when I left the school or when I was deciding that I wanted to leave, you know, and it was at the last moment that I told my dad, I don't want to go back. My ex-girlfriend, she said, you, I, like, broke down crying and telling her how I was not going back and I felt like a failure about not going back there and quitting, you know, and certain things. But I don't remember those conversations with her, and she kind of knew them like they were yesterday. You know, um, she said there was something going on. She didn't know how bad it was for me, but she understood and she encouraged me to, you know, not go there, go to community college. Then you can apply to another college and you can get accepted because I always had good grades or could do better. I mean, in high school, I was very good with grades and so forth. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm not even able to write a English paper or do math calculus. So that was something that a lot of people that, like, how are you failing in school? You were, like, really smart, you know. And I just couldn't explain things. And there were, like I said, after that, uh, lapses in time, things that later on I was like, could I – did this happen or did I do, you know, didn't know what happened or did I do this or did I not do this? Your crimes occurred over a 26-hour period. You were you were convicted of murdering three uh, Washington, D.C. area prostitutes by, yeah. a, was it asphyxiation with a plastic bag? No, it was, I don't even know what the bag thing was. Uh I remember when when it when it happened. I remember just the command, like just automatic, auditory, like just you know a military like move from behind. What you what you basically saw uh, the guy in New York, the, where the cop choked the guy out. Oh yeah, I can move. It was basically I could I could you could see your I could just hear the command and my arm like go, but not being able to stop. Yeah, and you know you're 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 literally watching yourself do this, you know, it, and it's you're you're there, but someone else is there, but you can't stop yourself. But you know what you're doing. You're kind of yeah weird to, and scary to even see it sometimes when I see certain moves like that on TV. That you know, is that does that bring memories back? Yeah, yeah. Um. Before these three murders, were you showing any signs of 
violent outbursts or anything of that sort leading up to these attacks? Other than with my staff sergeant at school, uh, at home with family, no. Uh, some people, some of my friends said that I got these were people that I knew since third grade, and I just fell back from dealing with them or communicating. I just, I was living near them, but I wouldn't communicate or isolating you know, associate with them. Yeah. Uh, and they, they didn't understand it, and they just kind of, you know, yeah, they didn't know. That's the best way, and they were like, well, you know, he doesn't want to deal with us. It wasn't that. I don't know why I stopped talking to so many of them. It just happened. So during this 26-hour period, you murdered the first victim, and I believe after you murdered her, you went to work. Is that correct? That, that evening, yeah. I have a question about the first victim um, while we're on the topic, Sherry Larman. So yeah. there's a few different things that, Differed from what you told police the first time. The first being that you told, or something about you hit her on the head, then placed placed a gray trash bag over her head, and then causing her to suffocate. But then another account you told police that you had killed her with a military stronghold or stranglehold. Yeah, and like I said, it was the whole thing first. But I, I think the bag was like. I don't know if there was blood or what, and I put the bag there. I don't know why. That was something that I didn't understand. And then, you know, one other thing they said was the, the tying. I used some tie that we had at the house. But they said something weird about the way it was tied. It was methodically the same type of tie or, you know, I don't know, way it was done. They said something about that, but uh, I think they were all, they had already passed after I put the bag on. Um, I don't think they were, uh, you know, still yeah. alive. Um, what that exactly was, I never could figure out. But you know, the one thing I always, because one of the officers said something, it was basically like about the, the tie. The hands were tied, and he said something about all three were done like exactly the same type of manner or something. And I didn't quite understand that then, but, and I still yeah. kind of don't know. Um, I can't remember if during military school or anything where we did, you know, the only time we ever did any tying of rope and stuff was when we did rebelling. So I don't know what type of, you know, way they said it was all three work. Like, the hands were tied the same way. Let me ask you, because from what I've read, it said that the, the motive of these crimes were robbery. Is that correct? They said that. Then some people said it was because of my ex-girlfriend. Some people said I was having financial difficulty. That was all kind of, you know, things that were put in the air. Um... I was interviewed by several psychologists from, for the prosecution and for the state. Um, 
one of, you know, the prosecution uh, psychiatrists were from the University of Virginia. I think two of them said they didn't feel there was a problem. There was no schizophrenia. One of them, I remember, said there was no form of, there was some acute form of schizophrenia, and he wanted further interviews to be done, but the court said no. And this was the prosecution psychiatrist that was saying this. And mine said that they interviewed even more extensively than the state psychiatrist, and they said they felt there was schizophrenia and treatment was necessary. It was an insanity trial, but, you know, I don't know if at that time it was even schizophrenia. It may have been more to deal with some type of, you know, massive depression or PSTD or something. PSTD, you know, yeah. with a lot of other trauma things. It may have been more of that. Um, but I had went from the moment I came into the Department of Corrections up until 2014, I was under psychiatric care medicine. I was uh, allowed to have a single cell because of psychiatric needs. Um, I went through treatment with, you know, a total of like three different psychiatrists. I was lucky to have one of them. He's very well known and very well respected. Um, treatment through them and some psychologists that were pretty good. Um, 2014, I was taken off medicine. Um, I was I came to a lower facility first. Those were usually at higher facilities. Once I came to this lower facility. Um, the individuals that were here said, you know, let's try. My dosage had for, I was on medication called, I think, Trellophon. And it had been reduced over the last six years to a mild dosage. And they were like, let's see how you do. Let's, you know, you're in a cell with somebody that really knows you well and you're functioning. And we'll just come see you every now and then. So they did for a while. No medication. Um, the psychiatrist where I work, they usually walk the hallway, so they see me every day. And that was good. And that was 2014, middle of 2014. Um, I've been pretty well, pretty good since then. I still have depression and anxiety sometimes. Um, I don't know if it's depression always, it's more maybe sadness, but depression or sadness, um, meditation has allowed me to better control that, you know, I, I laugh when some people say I found peace with meditation and all, I think I've been able to find more control of myself. Through meditation, I'm more calm. I don't get upset. I don't get, you know, angry or, and you know, I have other outlets when I can release it as far as go run, work out, and stuff like that. But I'm more in control 
and less argumentative. Um, was there at all a sexual element to your crime or, or crimes? I don't. And there were things that I said happened during the crime, and then they said that's not possible. There were things that they said were happened, and I don't recall. Uh, one, the first victim, they said was really beaten up, but I don't remember hitting her like that. Um, the other two are not as, I guess, I don't know, but that was one thing. And, and, and you know, it, it during the trial, I even shut down a little bit because, you know, with, for what they were calling me and what I should be, I'm not, you know, as far as like having a conscience and believing things, it, it, that's why, you know, someone that said they came to the court, a friend of mine, you know, she said, she said, we sat right there and you didn't even recognize us. Um, she's like, what was going on with you then? I said, I don't know. I was in, I was in a daze, like, you know, in my own trial. Um, she was like, were you on medication today? And I'm like, no, I wasn't. And she was like, we were sitting and you walked right by us and didn't like even want to make eye contact. And these were friends I grew up with in, you know, since junior high. After the first victim, you were able to go to work. How were you able to compartmentalize that and go on? I don't know. Knowing you just killed somebody. I, I don't know. I was, you know, I remember even more the second time it happened because I usually didn't, and my, no one was home and stuff. So usually I don't, I never went to temple, you know, by myself, you know, out of just, I gotta go. I remember I went and I just sat like in the back, just, just in the back by myself there where most of the people were in the front. I was trying to like, what's going on? What's going on? And even in that work that day, I don't remember how I was functioning. I remember afterward, it was like I was a wreck. But I remember going to work and being there. I don't remember how I was. You know, was I afraid? I was just functioning. I can't remember. I looking, remember. So looking back, you seem, you seem detached from the emotions, almost as if you were a robotic at that time. I was there. I'm not saying I didn't do my job. I didn't know how to do my job. It's just, it was emotionless or, or I don't know. It's, I was there. I know that. I know I went there, went to work. Was I, you know, Afraid? Was I nervous? Was I don't? I will even remember fear. I don't remember joy. I don't remember any emotions at all. But I know I was there doing my job and you know functioning, other than emotion. You know how how did how did you feel when you were when you were caught and arrested and they they charge you with these three murders? How, how did you feel? Okay. Um, when my parents, my dad and my uncle showed up, um, 
first thing I told them I was sorry. I don't know. And they were just broken down themselves. They couldn't understand. And I just said, I'm sorry. I don't know. And that was then. And I did confess during the confession. They, I said a couple times that, yes, I heard a voice tell me to do this. And that was it. And then they didn't go any further than that. And I told them what I knew, what I, you know, because I knew, I, I knew I had done this, you know, and in a way I wanted it to stop because I was afraid. I had, you know, the three days they kept me in holding. I don't know if I slept a lot. I just slept a lot. And I didn't really have a peaceful sleep or anything or anything. I just slept a lot, you know. And three days in holding that they had me in a cell, like by myself, whatever. Um, there were certain deputies that were there. There was one female deputy in particular. She would come back there and just like, and the one thing she said to make me feel more comfortable was that she went to the same high school I did. So she's just like, I want to check on you. I'm like, why? You know? So, I don't remember a lot other than sleeping a lot. Were you ever diagnosed with any uh, personality disorders, antisocial personality, psychopathy, anything of that sort? They did the, uh, what's that called, the MMI Minnesota something test? The, you know, the test I'm talking about. Uh, I did that a couple times. Uh, they said that particular test showed uh, not antisocial or anything like that, but um, asocial behavior that I prefer to be by myself doing, you know, whatever. And they didn't really go into it too much. Um, the last one I just did, um, they had me do after I'd been off of medication for about five years and everything. They said, we just want to do an update. So I took the, took the test maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And he basically said, you know, it shows that you have possibilities of easy alcohol, drug abuse, depression, you know, things like that. But they didn't really, they don't really tell you fully about what's in your psychological record, even in the Department of Corrections. So... Um, I know we're going to get cut off in a few minutes. Is there anything that you would like to say or get out to the public that you've been wanting to, but just haven't had the opportunity to say it on a larger scale? You know, main thing is the, the mental health. Don't be afraid to, you know, speak up, to say something's wrong. You know, there needs to be less judgment on people. And maybe through that, people will say, you know what, it's okay for me to, Seek, speak up and get mental health, you know, treatment. Because especially amongst young people, there's a lot of judgment um, in here. When, you know, you ask somebody, where are you going? Oh, I got to go see the psychologist. You know, and the first thing they joke and play is, oh, you're, you're crazy. You know, it's not always that. It's, it's more complex. 
and issues and stuff. But, you know, that's, that's what I would, if I could do anything, I would want to help remove a stigma that mental health is no different than seeing a dentist or, you know, uh, any other doctor. It's, it's an illness, just like any other physical illness. Um, I know that by helping and talking about my issues and stuff like that, it's helped me and helped a lot of other people. And that's about all I can really think about of making amends. Um, I was chosen this past year to be part of the first victim impact group that they ran here. Out of 800 some people that applied, I got to be one of the 12. And I learned, I knew what I did to my victims. But the scope of that hurt that I caused that was bigger than that was not something I had ever thought about or looked at how far and deep that damage went. I found out also that one of my friends who was very much affected because of my case and her heartache and, you know, she felt that that's where her cancer came from. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and things and that didn't run in her family. No one knew, but she was someone who was close to me and how it affected her life and things that she went through. I found out from another friend that, you know, she was, went through some domestic abuse problems and things like that. And that really hurt me even more to know that I was reading this at the kiosk one day and the guy that had done this to her, all of a sudden I found myself like really, really angry. And, you know, I could have put my fist through the kiosk screen that day, but then I just took a, you know, breath and before I teared up reading it and I just realized that that's the same anger and hate someone probably has of me, you know, and whether that was a forgiveness moment or, you know what, you need to do better and more moment, it was just something I took it as knowing the hurt I caused her probably was a hundred times more for other people. But the scope of victim impact, we not everyone realizes how far they went and did things, how far it damages other people. So, but mainly the mental health. You know, I am not that same person I was, you know, 30 years ago now. Um, it's not just the age, it's, it's more of the development, but it's also more of the control. And also it's my, you know, my brother who was young at that time, he was only seven or eight years old. We have become more close and communicating since this parole turned down. There have been topics that my dad and I did not talk about that we are starting to now speak about with each other and, you know, try to help each other heal about me being locked up, my incarceration and things and issues they've had to deal with also. So it's been a painful moment, but when you start realizing the painful moment and you start making amends, 
I don't know if forgiveness ever comes in, but amends is something that will move you forward. That was our interview with Chander Mata. Andrew, how did you come across this guy? Because he's a very unknown multiple murderer. I'm not going to give up my trick on <laughs> how I go about finding people to interview. But he was in the same prison as another individual that I was speaking to. And his in- my information was actually passed along to him, which is funny because it happens all the time. But it's was, never a serial this, killer spree killer. It, yeah, was this from someone that we've already interviewed? No, it's somebody that wasn't interested, Mm. but he won't tell me their name, but I've reached out to quite a few individuals. I just, I just look for specific cases and whatnot, but I'm not going to give my, my secrets away. You, sir, are a weirdo. And in our unprofessional capacity, which I don't know if we ever have a professional capacity, um, in our unprofessional capacity, we're going to talk about Chandra Mata. Um, here's some things that that I kind of garnered from all of this. So Chandramata has problems adjusting socially while growing up. He stole women's underwear from laundromats as a teenager. Did you know that? I did not. He did. So that's a very interesting thing to note. Also his, his parents culturally, their, their, their cultural beliefs were very repressive sexually. I'm not sure if he had any genetic predisposition to rageful episodes, but he seemed to have them in his early adult life around the time of the murders, you know, early 20s, maybe late teens. The 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 murders seemed to reflect uh, triggered anger and how they were carried out. I mean, anger definitely seemed like it was part of it. Could have had a sexual component as well, being that the women were sex workers and whatnot, but... I think his motivation ultimately would have been over anger and, and and sexual gratification more so than the robbery. They The women were robbed. He took money and personal items from them. But I don't think that he did this and murdered them the way he did to rob them. He was kind of on the – I guess he wasn't very clear, maybe on the verge of a diagnosis of schizophrenia or has been diagnosed with schizophrenia – um, I'd have to listen to the interview again and see if I can make sense of that. But um, in his insanity defense at his trial, his defense was citing paranoid schizophrenia. Um, there was significant stress in his life around the time of the murders as well with the breakup of his girlfriend, financial issues, which he 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 mentioned those things in the interview, but also notably the accusations of hazing at school. So I, I looked into this a bit and I found an article from 1991 from the AP. And in this article, I found out that the hazing incidents were investigated by the school and at least one other student spoke out about the hazing around the same time, which was performed by upperclassmen towards freshmen, as Chandler told us in the interview. According to this other student and by accounts of others, this hazing was done by a group that called themselves the Night Riders, and Chander claims that this was a rather traumatic experience. So uh, I'm sure that added significantly to the the stress, and um, a- as he said, it was traumatic. And then on top of that, around that time, you have him on his own accord citing isolation, and then he also said something that while in prison, they've explored 
the possibility of de- depression or PTSD from the hazing incidents playing a role. So there's a lot going on. I mean, there's the recipe right there. As I said in the earlier part of this episode, Chander's usually referred to as a spree killer because his crimes took place over a 26-hour period, but I'm going to challenge that right now. Um, I think this might fall under the category of serial murder, and I'm going to explain why. By definition, a spree is the murder of two or more people in two separate locations with little time between murders. The thing with Killing spree identity is there's no psychological cooling off period. As our friend Dr. Lee Miller describes, what is a psychological cooling off period? I think Lee has a really good concept of it in saying that it's a return to normality. It's a return to their normal life. So between these murders, Chander Mata went to work and he worked a whole shift. And then he came back and he killed two more women. Under the concept of Lee Miller's psychological cooling off period the return to normality which two or more victims separate events with a cooling off period between murders i think that technically would qualify him as a serial killer yeah i guess it would i mean you could technically you could classify him as spree killer serial killer i think i think there's an argument there for to to have give him a serial killer classification but what the fuck do i know yeah no, yeah, nothing, right? Face tattoos. Yeah, stupid idiot right here. Yeah, yeah so yeah, Chandra Mata definitely has a pretty interesting case. And um, I think mental illness did play a, a, a pretty big role in this. I think there's I think there's a lot of moving parts here. And and, and he was the, the stage was set for homicidal proneness, as the experts would say. So let's uh, let's wrap this up and get out of here. Head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash criminal perspective shell out some of your dough subscribe get some extra episodes and uh make us very happy do you have anything to say andrew dodge i think that's it